0: we're here today to talk about golf's longest day I'm not talking about this past Tuesday, which was long, but I would actually consider golf's most absurd day. We're not here to talk about the PGA Tour Live merger and all the silliness involved in that. You can get that from any number of podcasts. No, we're here to talk about what the USGA has coined golf's longest day, which was Monday. U.S. Open final qualifying was held at sites all around the country, including one just across the Potomac River at Woodmont Country Club in Rockville, Maryland. That's where we will zero our interest in. I'm Chris Lang for the Virginia State Golf Association. Welcome to this episode of the Golf in the Commonwealth podcast. As you may have heard, two VSJ members advanced to next week's U.S. Open at Los Angeles Country Club through that Woodmont qualifier. Mariners Landings' Isaac Simmons, who plays at Liberty, and River Creek's Michael Brennan, who plays at Wake Forest. Simmons shot a four under 138 over two rounds to tie Aussie Carl Phillips, who plays at Stanford, for medalist honors. Brennan advanced to L.A. through a playoff, making an absurd up and down for par to lock down his spot. You've probably seen that video at this point, but if you haven't, check out the USJ's social media to find it. Long story short, Brennan hits what he calls a quote, just poor unquote approach, and the ball settles on thick grass just above the left green side bunker. He has to straddle the lip, his left leg on the grass, his right leg in the sand. And no, you amateur rules sleuths in the videos, Twitter mentions Michael was not building a stance. Anyway, Michael hits a moonshot that settles gently about six feet above the hole and he finesses a slick downhill putt into the hole and unleashes a big fist pump, much like the ones we saw when he was winning the V.S.J. Amateur Championship back in 2019. Michael spoke to the Washington Post's Gene Wang afterwards, saying, quote, With my right foot being in the bunker, I was hitting on such a steep upslope that it was actually doable to get the ball up super easily. The fact that it actually came out well and that it was the right distance and the right direction was a minor miracle. End quote. The U.S. Open appearance is another notch in Brennan's impressive resume, He's currently 14th in the World Amateur Golf Ranking. He won the ACC individual title last month. He has already played in a PGA Tour event, nearly making the cut at the Genesis at Riviera last year. Guess he really likes Los Angeles? And he has an excellent shot of representing the U.S. on the Walker Cup team later this summer. For Simmons, golf's longest day was transformative, life-changing, at least when it comes to the trajectory of his golf career. Simmons is currently 459th in the Wagger, and the U.S. Open qualification opens a ton of doors that were closed before. He's now exempted to the U.S. Amateur Championship, he's fielding calls from high-level tournaments like the Western Amateur and the Southern, and more. I'll let Isaac speak for himself on this matter, as he's one of two guests that we have on this U.S. Open preview episode. After Isaac, we'll hear from the USGA's Charlie Howe, a native Virginian who has been Championship Director of three U.S. Opens including next week's event at LACC. Hope you enjoy hearing from both as they give us some perspective of the week to come in Los Angeles. All right, we're here with Isaac Simmons, uh, qualified for the U.S. Open. I'm sure that's not uh, getting old yet, hearing that.
1: No, I've heard a lot, but it sounds good every time I'm hearing it.
0: Yeah. I mean, just take me through the feeling of that, the the sense of accomplishment. I think I probably interviewed you for the first time, probably when you were like 11 or 12 years old, playing at the Fox Post or something like that in Lynchburg, and to to be where you are today and have a chance to go tee it up at at L.A. Country Club has got to be an amazing feeling.
1: Yeah, it's been quite a journey, right? Um, But it's just cool to kind of, as I've gotten older and just played more golf, to continue to progress and kind of, you know, hit hit the hit the benchmarks. I guess you know, play in junior tournaments, then you get in a few elite tournaments, then college tournaments, and you know, and then U.S. Opens, obviously, probably the pinnacle of golf. So it's just cool to kind of uh, hit that hit that you know bucket list item um, twenty three. So. Yeah, it's just been a nice – it's been a cool journey. And, uh, you know, it's just – it's kind of surreal still. Uh, you, you know, uh, obviously I had expectations and uh, hopes, right? Like I thought that I liked the course. I like where we we're playing. And I played it before, thought I was playing well. So I had a realistic, you know, feeling that it could happen. But it's just – and when it actually does happen and you actually, you know, achieve something that you've set out to do, uh, it's pretty cool because as a golfer, usually we, we fall short of, of set goals. So it's kind of cool to just actually do it.
0: You're talking about Woodmont. It does not have a reputation as an easy golf course. And you shot, I think, what, 76-71 last year and at, at the same course. You come back 69-69 yep. this year. What, what did you learn – about Woodmont last year that probably helped you this this time around.
1: So yeah, I really think last year was really critical to this year. Uh, started on ten last year, bogeyed the first four holes, and then played the rest of the thing like one under, I guess. So I thought I, you know, honestly, I thought I played really well last year. Uh, besides just kind of a rough start, which. Yeah, I really attribute that to just – that's a tough course, and the greens, they cut them a lot quicker, and it, it seems like overnight they get quicker and firmer, right? So uh, just kind of knowing that – let's ease into the round a little bit. Like I started 1-3-4 this year, but I started on the front, which is a little easier start. So let's just kind of hit some greens. That's what I learned. It's cliche, but let's hit the greens. Um, let's stay patient and i'm glad that last year i stuck around and played that afternoon round uh, after shooting four over the first round because i really got a feel for how different the course is morning to afternoon it really firms up um the afternoon is really firm out there like gosh you if i'm 105 yards you're trying to land at like 92 93 sometimes with a wedge i mean i put a pretty decent amount of spin on it so it's you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that unless you had done it before, right? So, I think last year really played a pivotal role into how well I did this year.
0: Yeah. Did you uh, stick around and watch the playoff afterwards?
1: So, uh, I kind of watched some tee off, but I left. Uh, waited around, talked to Michael a little bit. Just said, like, play well. And George, same thing. Um, me and Carl actually played together in the qualifier, and we ended up being co-medalists. So we did a little media together. We had to do some interviews, um, some stuff for the USGA. By the time we did all of that, uh, they were teeing off. So we got to see, like, them tee off and then um, had to actually do a little bit more of stuff. So I think they were up at the green when I was, like, done with everything. So I was just like, let's get out of here. Like, I'm not walking all the way all the way out there, to, you know, because it could have been over by that point. So, no, I didn't see the up and down or anything like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, did you see the video of it at least? I saw,
1: it. yeah. So what's funny is, I don't know if you've been able to talk to Michael or anyone's talked to him about it, but that hole, number eight, that pin is back left. I don't know how well you can see from the video, and it's a very, very, very severe slope it's on. It's on, like, on the, the book I had, it's like a three, four-degree slope um, where that pin is. It's very severe. So what's funny is, is if he had actually been in the bunker – he would have had no chance at an up and down. Uh, so it's kind of funny that that shot looked like that shot was obviously very impossible, but honestly, like, it's crazy that his ball stayed there. And then he was able to get it up and down. Uh, and that's a that little putty had from six feet is probably the fastest putt you could possibly have on a golf course. So, yeah, I mean, that was, that was crazy. Uh, obviously it was rooting for Michael and George, you know, both of them. Um, but I'm glad we at least got one more VSGA member out there.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it's it's crazy to think we're we're still trying to figure out the last time we've actually had a VSGA member amateur make it um, to to have two. I mean, what kind of pride do you guys take in that? and Just getting a chance to represent Virginia in the in, a, in the national championship.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, actually, talked to Matt Smiley earlier today. Uh, he was saying like, man, like this is unprecedented for us. So it's cool to to be able to have not one but two guys out there um, be able to represent. And I think it, you know, should encourage a lot of people to uh, get out and play and that the that the tournaments, you know, when you're younger and you're developing are good enough to make you into a good player.
0: Let's say you've, you played well in the, in the VSJ Amateur last year. You made it to the semifinals. Michael won it a few years ago. I mean, does it say good things about the, the depth of field in this state of of, of how difficult it is to, to make it to that point in an amateur championship?
1: Yeah, I think that the quality of golf that we have in the state, um, just in terms of the number of players, might not be as many. But I think to win a championship, uh, you have to beat a lot of good players. So that speaks volumes that if you re- if you want to win a VSGA uh, championship, and if you do win a VSGA championship, then your game is probably good enough to compete at the highest level. Yeah.
0: Um, back to Woodmont a little bit was your dad on the bag is what I understand
1: yeah he was so he, he caddied last year there um, and just kind of didn't want to switch it up uh, that's kind of it's like the one thing he caddies in for me all year like he he doesn't really caddy into other tournaments in the summer he's busy I'm busy and he'll watch but um, you know in a lot of college tournaments there's no caddy so most of my tournaments not even using a caddy and uh, so it's cool that like when he got – like he was out there, you know, it's been it'd been exactly a year since he'd been on the bag last year at Woodmont. So it's just cool when he, when he is there um, and actually there shot for shot to play well. Uh, that's, I guess, rewarding for both of us.
0: Yeah. Is, is it staying the same for next week? Is he going to be on the bag there? Or are you hiring somebody local?
1: Yeah, the tentative plan is I've been – all I've been doing is on the phone the last 48 hours, but the tentative plan is – that he did the caddy registration. Like he's going to register as my caddy. Um, and I've talked to some officials. They're going to still get me a local caddy. So I'm definitely going to use someone from the course on Monday and Tuesday. And yeah. then I think what I would like to happen – now I'm not saying it's going to happen. But what I would like to happen is have him kind of uh, caddy on Wednesday and see how it goes, see if he's comfortable with, with it. And if he is, then, yeah, he'll probably be on the bag for the tournament.
0: That's awesome, man. I mean, have you thought about just kind of the – you're going to be out at the same place playing with, with John Rahm and Brooks Kepka and Jordan Spieth and Rory McIlroy, things like that. I mean, that's a, uh, obviously a huge step up in competition. I mean, what, what, what kind of thought goes through your mind when you, when you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, someone asked me about that the other day, and I said, you know, a lot of times we say we're playing with some of the best players in the world. But rarely do we get to say, especially as an amateur or a college student, like we're going to play with the best player in the world or the best players in the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, what other sport can I get the opportunity to play against Michael Jordan or Tom Brady as a college student? You don't. So uh, it's it's really cool to just be out there and hopefully maybe I don't know. I'm hoping to play a practice round with someone that's up there, like just because you kind of kind of just sign up, right? And I've heard oh, – I've had friends that in the past have just, you know, walked on the range and asked or just signed up, and everyone's been cool with it. So, yeah, it'd be really awesome to get to pl- actually play with a Scotty Scheffler or a Jordan Spieth. Uh, those are probably the two guys that I want to play with. Um, but, I, yeah, so it's just going to be awesome just to actually be in the same tournament. And not only is it just a golf tournament, but it's, it's the U.S. Open. Like, what else could you ask for?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, What are kind of your travel plans and practice plans for the week here?
1: So I'm going to leave Sunday. I think we're flying out of Roanoke. Going to get to L.A. around 3 o'clock, something in that range. Not exactly sure, but something in there. And then don't know what I'm going to do when I get there. Might head out to the course and look at it a little bit. Um, My coach, my college coach, Jeff Thomas, he's actually – on family vacation in Los Angeles right now. So he's going to just stay around. He'll be there when I get there. Um so I'm sure we'll head out to the course and it's probably not a bad idea after a 5-hour plane ride to swing a few clubs and get loose. And then yeah, probably take it pretty light on Sunday and then I plan on, you know, getting out there Monday and Tuesday and then Wednesday's up in the air like might play like nine or something. It's going to be, you know, it's a lot of golf to play Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then, you know, you're already tired before the tournament starts. So definitely plan on kind of going pretty heavy on Monday and Tuesday and maybe taking it a little
0: lighter on Wednesday. Yeah. Um, You talked about Jeff Thomas a little bit and, and and Liberty. Uh, Do you take a lot of pride in being one, one of the few local guys on that team? Um, I know that, that that Jeff recruits pretty nationally, but um, you came in several years ago and you've really kind of played your way into form and, 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 uh, giving yourself a place on that team.
1: Yeah, it's it's cool. I mean, um, I don't think anyone even has been from the state of Virginia on that team, and gosh, I don't know. Like, I can't remember the last person that's from Virginia on the team, maybe six or seven years ago, besides myself. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's cool, and we have a diverse group and a uh, competitive group. And it's it's been good prep for uh, moments like this. Um, college golf's a great, great preparation. We play a lot of tough courses, a lot of tough conditions, uh, a lot of thirty-six hole days, a lot of days when we're tired and you just don't want to be out there. And you know, it gets like that sometimes. So it's a good it's good prep for uh, challenging conditions and like really good prep for the qualifier yesterday too.
0: Yeah, not only that, too, but there, obviously Liberty's been a program that's been in, been in regionals, been in the top 30 nationally, playing with guys like Kieran Vincent, who's who's gone on to professional golf now. What has that done for your career, just just learning from those guys, competing against those guys day in and day out?
1: Yeah, so this was the first we've been doing. We went to three national championships in a row. We did not make it this year, um, but we still had a pretty good team. And guys like Kieran, obviously, uh, helped push the program forward. And we're trying to do the, the same thing now that he's gone. But yeah, yeah it's cool to see, uh, to be able to play. We're, you know, you're playing with a guy like that, you're in with him at practice all the time, or you're playing with, you know, other, other guys around him that have been professional. And just to know that, yeah, they're good players, but you you can see what makes them um, successful. You can see their work ethic. He has a really tremendous work ethic. And that's what I probably the most, the number one thing I learned from him is just how hard he works and how dedicated he is um, and that it will pay off. It might not pay off, you know, in six months. It might not even pay off in a year, but it, it will eventually. Um, and also just to know that, hey, we played a lot of rounds together. He's beat me some, I beat him some, and that you can compete, right? And that's the thing that kind of gives you confidence uh, that you see you see friends and teammates be successful. You know that you can be just as as successful as they are.
0: Is this a kind of a life-changing thing for you in terms of your golf career, just to, to be able to play at this level? I know that the last year or so that you've stepped up some of your your summer tournaments and things like that, and you've been playing with uh, playing better competition. But th- this obviously has got to be just a gigantic step to 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 take this step.
1: Yeah, it's really nice. Um, it's going to be even nicer if I can play better. So that's kind of what I'm focused on is um, trying to play well once I get there because. You know, there's a lot of nice things that come with getting into the U.S. Open, but there's going to be a lot of nice things that come with playing well in the U.S. Open. So, yeah, it's opened a lot of uh, doors, you know, just in the 48 hours I've been in contact with people that I wouldn't have been in otherwise, Um, sitting here talking to you, uh, talked to, you know, some people that have helped me out and, you know, just making those connections, honestly, has been just as nice as uh, the golf part of it, right? Like meeting people, talking to people. Um, It's been really cool. And obviously for golf, yeah, it it helps me out a lot. Uh, Obviously, I'm playing the U.S. Open, and I'm getting into some other tournaments. Like, I don't have to qualify for the U.S. AM. I can play in the Western AM, Southern AM. So those are tournaments that I was kind of on the, the cusp of, like maybe yes or no, kind of right there on the fence. But, you know, now I don't have to worry about that now. So it's it, yeah, it's given me opportunities, right? Like I have to play well now that I've done this, but it's given me a couple of really good opportunities that if I can play well uh, in those events, that it's really gonna really gonna propel me.
0: Yeah. What what has kind of gone well in the last maybe two or three years where your game has really improved? What that, that has allowed you allowed you to get into this position here?
1: Yeah. So I just think that um, I was never someone that had a a sudden mo- breakout moment. Like I just didn't kind of show up and all of a sudden one day rip off three months in a row of winning or, but I, I've always thought that every year that I've played since I was probably nine years old, I started playing in, you know, VSGA and U S kids and stuff like that. I just think I've gotten better every year. I think that the, not only do I think that, but the, that the scores and the data show it just better every year, just continuing to, work on deficiencies in my game. And I think what really switched a couple years ago was uh, the first year I was in college, I was sick and I had an injury and had a lot of health problems. And then obviously COVID. So I just think that uh, competing kind of knocked me down in some of these tougher tournaments at first, but I realized like where I was falling short, and what I needed to improve. And then I've just chipped away at that. And I think every year it's gotten better. I've spent a lot more time focused on my body, um, trying to get stronger, trying to prevent injuries. And I've got a great team, uh, VSSI, Dr. Lowe's, Tom McRae. You know, these guys are the top, some of the top TPS certified uh, chiropractors and strength coaches in the world. Like, and we got them right here in Lynchburg. So it's been nice to work with them they've been really helpful. Um, and I'm hitting the ball further hitting the ball straighter. And I mean, distance, I would, I would honestly say a lot of it's distance. Um, I mean, I've also, I've, I've just gotten better just because I'm getting older and I'm getting more mature and I'm practicing more, but I've added probably, you know, 30 yards of distance off the tee since I came to college. So, and that's nice. Like I played with, uh, Two really good golfers in the qualifier: Braden Garrison, Carl Phillips. You know, one's a pro, one's an All-American Stanford. And I was hitting it, you know, probably ten to fifteen yards further off the tee, and maybe a half a club or a club less into the par threes. And they're not short players, and I'm not saying I'm the longest player in the world, but it's just nice to have added some extra distance, and it takes a lot of pressure off of the game.
0: Yeah, you were talking a little bit about the the support team at, at in Lynchburg and at LU. I mean, you and I both know about the growth of Liberty and, and the athletics department in the last however many five, six seven years. I mean, can you kind of explain to people just how just how high how how high class of an athletic department that is at this point? It's no longer a, it's not a little big South school anymore. We'll put it that no way. Liberty is,
1: gosh, I mean, the resources they they have and the willingness what they're able to do to their athletics is pretty. Pretty remarkable considering where we started. Um, I mean, we're – the football team has been really well – been doing well. They've probably been the best team in the state for three or four years now. Uh, Basketball made the tournament a couple times. Uh, Golf team's been in three out of the last four national championships. And that's just what people know about. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes things that don't get covered. Women's sports have been really good. Tennis has been really good. Cross-country has been really good. So it's just like a continual improvement in every sport as just kind of, everyone's kind of pulling each other up the ladders or the rope or whatever you like to say. But, uh, and you know, they're first class here, they treat us well and, you know, we're treated well when we go to play tournaments uh, we have, you know, we, we, we have good travel, we play in good tournaments. Um, we travel <laughs> Pretty far sometimes, but you know we fly a lot, so that's expensive to fly. Obviously, so you know, Liberty's Liberty's putting up a lot of money for uh, for the golf team to really uh, continue to get better, and they're, de- they're devoting a lot of resources to us.
0: Yeah. Um, just kind of shifting gears a little bit back uh, back to next week. Um, you know, once you kind of get over all the 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 wow factor of being in the U.S. Open, how do you? kind of reset yourself mentally and and give yourself some realistic expectations for, for when when play actually starts on Thursday.
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, I'm trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> um yeah, a lot of people close to me uh, have told me that hey Isaac, you got to be a little bit selfish next week. Uh, you can't you know do everything that everyone's going to want you to do and you got to just try to practice. You can't answer every phone call. You can't answer every text. Uh, You just not got to put the phone away for a little bit and just practice. Um, It's been tough doing that yesterday. I got a little bit better at it today. I'll get a little bit better at it tomorrow. Uh, And yeah, I just don't want to be worn out by the time Thursday comes. I don't want to feel like I get to the actual golf tournament and then there's a letdown from being just so, you know, drained from all that's coming with it, Uh, regardless of how I play, I want to give myself the best chance to play well. You know, I can live with results. I can live with whether they're good or bad, but I don't want to feel like, man, I wish I did something differently or man, I wish I was prepared to tee it up. So yeah, I'm kind of, hopefully by tomorrow I'll have everything that I need uh, sorted out and I'm almost there. I'm not quite there, but, I'm almost there, and then hopefully Friday, Saturday I have really good prep, and then by the time I get there, um, hopefully everything will kind of you know be settled, and I can just focus on preparing for the tournament.
0: Yeah, what do you know about the golf course? Maybe you had a chance to scout it much or
1: not much. Um, seen a little bit, kind of kind of understand the greens are pretty pretty complex out there. That's the defense of the course. If I'm not mistaken. Uh, don't quote me on this, but maybe Gil Hans did a redesign or did something to the course. Sounds familiar. Only reason I say that's because I saw some things where he was commentating on the course. So made me kind of believe that he had something to do with it, but maybe not. But I saw some videos where he was talking about holes. Uh, and it yeah, it sounds like a few holes have pretty wide fairways for a US Open. So it it doesn't seem like the Wingfoot or the Oakmont type of course. It seemed a little bit unique compared to those, but there's some challenging par threes. I did, I did kind of look at those. There's five par threes. I'm pretty sure, uh, which is unique. And one's 285. I don't, I hope it's downhill because I don't want to pull out a head cover on a par three, but yeah, sounds like the par threes are kind of key to the course. And then on other holes, a lot of risk reward holes. It seems like I saw there was maybe a drivable par four and a couple par fives where you have some decisions to make. So it really sounds like it's all about uh, your approach and once you get up to the greens out here.
0: Awesome, man. Well, you know you've got a lot of people back here uh, rooting for you next week, and uh, you and Michael both. And uh, best of luck to everyone over there, and have a lot of fun, man.
1: All right, Chris. Thank you so much.
0: All right. Thanks. All right. We are here with Charlie Howell, who is the championship director of the 2023 U.S. Open, which is coming up very soon at Los Angeles Country Club. Thanks for joining us today, Charlie. I
2: appreciate you having me Chris as you can probably hear my emails are pinging in the background uh with only days to go before we really open the gates uh at the Los Angeles Country Club first time venue uh so that's exciting and first time in Los Angeles in 75 years
0: yeah it's good it, and we all love it on the east coast when we have some west coast uh, us open some primetime action on Sunday it's going to be fantastic it's, it's going to be fun to watch but uh... Before we get into the L.A. Country Club and and, and golf with you, I, I know we want to talk a little bit about your background, which was uh, not necessarily golf when you started. You were the captain of the Virginia Tech soccer team, correct, and played for the That's Richmond right. Kickers. Uh, tell us a little bit about your your kind of your athletic background.
2: Oh Well, we, we grew up, um, you know, like most kids, being introduced to, to baseball, basketball, soccer at a young age and, you know, just didn't grow up in a family, at least, you know, immediate mom, dad, didn't necessarily play golf, maybe except for week-long Vacation. I uh, had a grandfather who really played and belonged to a country club in uh, Rockbridge County, Lexington Country Club, and you know he was always in athletics. He was a former athletic director and head football coach at uh, the College of William and Mary uh, as a player in the 40s and then 50s as an AD and head coach. So sports was in my background, and, and as you know in Richmond, we don't have necessarily. You know, when you think of professional sports like the NBA or Major League Baseball or the NFL, we just didn't really have those teams. Um, so who did you follow? My, my posters on my wall growing up were professional athletes of all over the place. I'd have a Barry Sanders poster right next to a Jerry Rice poster. So right, no loyalty to team there. And the NBA, it'd be a Michael Jordan poster right next to a Charles Barkley poster. Uh, so I just appreciated great athletes being from Richmond and or you know, me being from Richmond and the great athletes that were participating in, in professional sports. And you dream of playing a professional sport one day and and certainly was able to focus on soccer a little bit more and go to Virginia Tech and then have um, you know a really brief career with the Kickers uh, which really led into the year after I left the Kickers I had the opportunity to continue with them uh, but had this opportunity with the USGA and again being a a fan of great athletes look no further than Tiger Woods and that was kind of my I knew the game didn't play golf but saw this guy chasing these records of Jack Nicklaus and Arnold Palmer. And and I would laugh growing up or even tell this story. I, I probably learned who Arnold Palmer were, was or Jack Nicklaus because of me being a fan of Tiger Woods and just the records he was chasing.
0: Oh, that's awesome, man. I, I'm, I'm a uh, kicker season ticket holder for, I think, five years. There you strong, go. Right? There you they, go. Uh, they've got a really good presence right now in Richmond. So it's kind of cool to see that thing grow.
2: Uh, yeah. We had a fantastic season when I was there. Every, we were regular season champions and, had a really memorable one of the most historic wins at U of R stadium where we beat the LA galaxy. So an MLS team, uh, in the U S open cup back in 2007. So fond memories of the, the whole program there and now have a lot of friends in Richmond who have kids that participate in the, in the kickers program as youth.
0: It's really cool. Um, I want to ask you a little bit, you, you mentioned Tiger Woods already. Yeah. I think your <laughs> first, your first foray into, uh, Championship operations with the USGA was at t- 2008 at Torrey Pines, correct? When he beat Rocco in that playoff.
2: So, so imagine, right? What a first impression of not only a golf tournament, but major championship and sports, and all the different pieces and vendors and staff and broadcast partners, media, whether it's print or now. Nowadays, we have podcasts and and influencers. But Tiger Woods, Rocco Media, I mean, one of the most epic US Opens in all of history. You know, 72 holes wasn't enough. We had to go to a full 18 hole playoff on Monday. Uh, 18 holes wasn't enough on Monday. They had to go to the seventh hole. And we all know what the story happened after that to uh, the Tiger, you know, beating Rocco more or less on a, on a broken leg. So that was the first impression into the USGA, first impression into golf. Had no idea maybe that it would lead into the career that it has, but fast forward 15 years and you know now championship director of our us open and have been in this role really since uh, the 2016 us open at
0: oakmont yeah how did you uh, get involved with the usga where did that how did that kind of come about
2: yeah so i had a little richmond tie from uh, the standpoint of i attended the Center for Sport Leadership. It's at VCU's uh, School of Business, actually chair and and president of our alumni association now with that board. And that was my foray into sport management, sport leadership. The executive director at the time was a guy, Nathan Tomasini. In the past, he was an adjunct sport business business professor at UNC Chapel Hill. He had taught a student that inevitably was, uh, had worked for the USGA and and that student in turn, leading up to that 2008 US Open you know, shot Nathan Tomasini, again, the former executive director. Now you have Dr. Kerry Lacrom in that role and said, you know, do you have any students that would be interested in applying? So applied for the position and uh, was fortunate enough to to be the one that was selected, uh, you know, really throughout the country. And move, so moved and drove across the country to San Diego in preparation for that U.S. Open in Torrey Pines.
0: That's awesome, man. Um, you, your first turn as uh, championship director was at Shinnecock in 2018, correct?
2: Yeah, so a very similar role. I was a championship manager uh, mm-hmm. at the 2016 U.S. Open, but I was our lead person on site and uh, got elevated with a nice title going into the Shinnecock U.S. Open. Uh, mm-hmm. But all great experiences being just having the opportunity to work at those historic clubs. You kind of have to pinch yourself of how fortunate that I've been, but also getting to meet their membership, getting to meet their their club administrators, the the city officials, county officials of all those different locations throughout the country um just an incredible network of people who love this game and you know the usj doesn't have a home course we don't have a home club so it really is a partnership and we're just grateful uh certainly to the ones that i just mentioned but any any of the ones that we have in the future as well it, it takes a a lot to uh, host a us open um but it's exciting um, and it's their opportunity to give back to the game as well um, by holding a national championship
0: yeah, what, what did you learn from those first couple of experiences at Oakmont and, and Shinnecock ad, about how to run one of these events?
2: Well, it's so many moving pieces. And the nice part about before getting into that role is I had, you know, really purposefully looked at, uh, you know, different career paths maybe within the USGA and looked at our kind of U.S. Open directors. And just I know all the different facets of our championship, whether it's our 3,500 volunteers that we have competing or, you know with the championship and managing that. So I did that one role at Marion Golf Club in 2013. You know, from a parking with transportation, the logistics, you know, I wanted to focus on that for the U.S. Open. I did that in 2009. And we think about vendor management and the construction, the site build, ultimately the facilities that make up, you know, the city that is the U.S. Open. Uh, I focused on that and that was my role at, at Congressional in 2011. And and did some public safety in there, working with law enforcement, whether. It's from a federal level with FBI or Homeland Security, Customs Border Patrol, to all the way down to kind of the local municipality. So I purposely sought out roles and kind of raised my hand to hopefully uh, be given that opportunity to serve that role, which I think helped me develop uh, really the coverage that I need and the experience that I needed to be in a, you know, a championship manager or championship director role. So... You know what? What I learned is just need to have a lot of experience and kind of expertise in a lot of different things and wear a lot of hats. Uh, so going into Oakmont, kind of took that that mindset. And you know, relationship building is critical to what we do. Again, we can't do this. We don't. We have a 300 employees with the USGA. About 100 115 joined for the US Open. Uh, we we conduct the U.S. Open, but we couldn't do it without the 3,500 volunteers and all the different stakeholders that really come together to showcase, um, you know, what we're so proud of in our in our U.S. Open.
0: And you're out you're on site for uh, two years ahead of the event, essentially. I mean, what take us through what that looks like and what those two years to to prep essentially for one week is.
2: Really, and you can even narrow it down maybe to four days when the scores count. Uh, it is a week long event for us, as you know. We sell um, tickets for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and have practice rounds. So we're excited to, to be able to have that offering uh, seven days for our fans. But you know, you just think about the the opportunity that we have um, in front of us with just the massive scope of what it takes to get together. So all those things I just mentioned, you know, the parking, the transportation, the logistics, you know, public safety, you know, multi, multi agencies, all reporting up to one kind of incident command structure. It's uh, it's a lot of coordination, a lot of relationship building, and, and it takes those two years. And sometimes you feel like you need more, um, but hotel accommodations, you know, we get to that, we get ahead of that and four or five years in advance sometimes in cities so we have about 7 room nights throughout the entirety of the week that we have our players or our caddies rules officials you know broadcast media there's a lot of different stakeholders that we have to do so a lot of relationship building getting the city ready as well uh for los angeles they hadn't had a us open championship since 1948 when ben hogan won his first of four majors at riviera They are not uh, unfamiliar with major events, though, just having the Super Bowl, just having the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, college football, national championship. They're they're no stranger to major events, but a seven-day major event like uh, the U.S. Open is, that's unique to them. Uh, So working with them, working with the great people here in the city and in the county to really understand the scope and magnitude of the U.S. Open. Uh, so as you can quickly see, sometimes you maybe feel like two years isn't enough, but very thankful to have that uh, that time to really establish those relationships.
0: What would you say is the most challenging part of, 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 the, of your job here?
2: You know, I think it's just wearing so many hats. Um, we've got great team members that support and you know, I have staff here that manage the volunteer program, manage a lot of the parking, transportation, logistics, manage the public safety. So there's just a lot of moving parts and staying organized. And then, of course, we have all of our departments that are back at Golf House in New Jersey, whether it's our broadcast team or media comms team. Whether it's our rules officials, our course setup team, you know, they're all coming to Los Angeles uh, to visit and meet the different people relationship wise that they need they need to to accomplish their jobs. So some of the challenges challenges coordination, uh, but I think for us, what's so unique about the USGA and we have 15 national championships every year, but we take it to a different venue every single year, and a lot cha- And sometimes there's 10, 15 years in between when that particular venue is hosting. A U.S. Open or a Women's Open or or a U.S. Amateur or a Mid-Am. So, what playbook are you going off of? Is the playbook from 15 years still relevant? I mean, the world's changed, technology's changed. So, most cases, it's not a scenario where you're dusting off a playbook. So, that's the challenge of just understanding you have 18 holes at all those different golf courses, but they're different. The topography, the the land that's available to kind of construct, you know, the support. Uh, sites or tents that ultimately are needed for the U.S. Open. That's the challenge. But it's also a lot of fun, and, you know, I like challenges. And going back to kind of where we started uh, on the conversation, just that competitive nature in sports and, and athletics, I think led me to have that and appreciate that challenge versus, you know, some events that get to have the same golf course every year. That's very different.
0: Yeah. Um, what are some of your favorite memories of working U.S. Opens and, and things like that?
2: I mean, there's so many, um, I don't, I don't have any kids, but I would, I would say it's kind of like, if you were asked to pick your favorite child, um, you know, in 2008, it's hard not to think of like that moment when Tiger makes that 12 foot pot on the 72nd hole, to go into a playoff. You know, I was right underneath the grandstand, you know, with our chief security advisor, we're kind of communicating with actually Tiger's family. Who's holding a newborn Samantha, his daughter at the time, and just understanding up, uh, Maybe do you want to see him, or do you want to be cognizant of, you know, Samantha and the noise, and just remember being in that moment and being kind of the where am I right now, which has happened. Uh, but you, you know, you fast forward to Marion Golf Club in 2013. You know, really the kind of golf media at the time was saying the U.S. Open had outgrown places like Marion Golf Club, those historic you know venues where you have the 1950 Ben Hogan's one iron, uh, but they hadn't had a U.S. Open since 1981, so. Thirty years or so had passed, and seeing that as a challenge of going, you know, we can have a, we can bring our US Open back to these iconic venues, and and I would argue that we're not at LACC without this success of being able to showcase, you know, a Marion Golf Club that was in twenty thirteen. We signed the agreement here with the Los Angeles Country Club in twenty fourteen. So, you know, right there, you can see, all right, we've proven it; we can go back to, and, and we're sometimes for the first time at LACC, but we can showcase and go to these. Wonderful, what we call cathedrals of the game. Uh, so Marion was incredibly special, and if you think about Oakmont, think about Shinnecock. Wingfoot was, you know, obviously a, a pandemic U.S. pandemic U.S. Open. We had to postpone that September with no fans. So, you know, we're going back in 2028, which we can't wait because we we want to have and give Wingfoot the. The opportunity they deserve to have fans and be able to share their great golf course uh, with the world in person, albeit you know it was on
0: television. Yeah, when you look back at that at that pandemic U.S. Open, how surreal was that whole experience of just being with all the best players of the world, not having anyone there outside of USGA officials really to, to see it and watch it.
2: No, incredibly surreal. And you have to remember you uh, really the pandemic in the United States started kind of maybe the epicenter if you will was uh, new rochelle in westchester county which was like a four iron from Wingfoot. so the relationships uh, and the role that i had to serve as well as several of our leadership uh the relationship with westchester county health new york state department of health things changing on a daily basis like like everyone and you know the golf industry is a lot closer than it's ever been because of that relationship where all we were all in it together i would say the sports industry so we were having conversations with NASCAR major league baseball of, Hey, how do we navigate this? What is your health department saying? And, you know, how can we make it a a safe to play or safe to attend? But it was different, certainly just being, you know, certainly having a mask on, but not having any fans and seeing our plans and all the protocols, procedures that we put in place to to make sure everyone was safe uh, relative to testing. But it was unique. It was like planning for five U.S. Opens at once. Because we were being tasked with, all right, it's in June, full attendance. All right, we realized that might not be happening. If we had to postpone in December, is it still, is it full attendance? Is it 50% attendance? Is it no attendance, 10%? And, you know, in parallel, we've got all these different plans going, just waiting for the kind of trigger from the county or state of what stage we were in. And then we would pick up that plan. So it was, you know, I'm so proud of what our organization did that year. So when you look at our trophy today, and we have 122 names on our U.S. Open trophy going back to 1895, you know we didn't contest the U.S. Open during World War One. We didn't contest it, you know, during World War Two for for obvious reasons for what was going on in the world at that time. I think it, we're proud to be able to have a 2022 name on that trophy in Bryson DeChambeau because it took a lot of efforts and, and a lot of support from New York State and Westchester County.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Um, Kind of pivoting back to to Los Angeles Country Club, you've been out there for a couple of years. Tell us a little bit about the venue and the golf course and what we can can expect uh, next week.
2: Well, next week, it is going to be incredible. This golf course is George C. Thomas. You know, George C. Thomas also did Riviera and Bel Air, so just iconic golf courses. But the topography just really untouched since they moved to this site in, in 1921, even though they were founded in 1897. Uh, but it's the Los Angeles Country Club. And I, I put emphasis on Los Angeles because it is in the heart of L.A. Where Beverly, the city of Beverly Hills borders us. But of those 122 U.S. Opens we've had previously, we haven't had a U.S. Open, I would say, in the heart of of a major city and the second most populated city at that. So you think of Marion, which I mentioned, it's just outside of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You think of the last year's U.S. Open at the Country Club in the town of Brookline. Again, not Boston, but Boston's nearby. Same with Oakmont Country Club in Pittsburgh. Great relationships with all those cities. But this one is right in the middle of the city. And I think that's what's so unique for being in the the, the bigness of the U.S. Open and the entertainment, and sports capital, really, I, I think of the world, and here we are, smack dab in the middle of it. And you know, the golf course is special, but what's unique is, and there's kind of a mystique to LACC. Is how many people have actually been on property outside of members and, and their guests over the years? We've had three championships at LACC previously, but you'd have to go back to 2017, the Walker Cup, attend, a ten or a team event, uh, which is the you know the best amateur players in the U.S. versus the best amateur players from Great Britain and Ireland, as you know. But then you'd have to go to 1954 for the U.S. Junior Amateur or 1930 for the Women's Amateur. So we have some history, some USJ history, but uh, certainly not a U.S. Open and not having the eyeballs uh, of really the global golf world uh, and probably just even outside of golf. Um, Looking forward to showing this and sharing this for the first time.
0: What kind of player do you think this course favors?
2: You know, it's a great question. I think some, a player who really appreciates architecture and understands uh, the intent behind the architect and George C. Thomas's design. You know, it's not a golf course where you can just have your yardage dialed in and expect your ball to be at that yardage, even if you hit it perfectly. You need to have control and an understanding of what happens to your golf ball after it lands. Uh, Whether you know some of the wider fairways we've had in in US Open history, but they won't play that way because the way they're canted or designed, so they're going to have to hit different cuts or fades like into fairways to to keep the ball in the fairway. So it has its kind of defenses in that manner. The uh, the player just I think someone who really does their homework, uh, but when have they had the opportunity because it's so unknown, there's not a PGA Tour event at this golf course. We had about 20 players that came over during the week of the Genesis, which was uh, at Riviera, you know, so their annual PGA Tour event. So we had a few Monday, Tuesday, come over early in the week and play and get a sneak peek, you know. But that golf course uh, in in its shape is amazing 365 days of the year, but it probably wasn't playing as firm or as fast and then different, different, you know, that was back in February and, and not in June. So. We'll see how much homework they do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, take full advantage of those practice rounds. But, yeah, to answer your question, I think just really understanding and having appreciation of architecture and uh, what happens to your golf ball, you know, needing to have complete control and use all 14 clubs in your bag.
0: And and as a guy with Virginia ties, uh, we've got two V.S.J. members uh, Mm -hmm. uh, teeing it up this week and Michael Brennan and Isaac Simmons, which is the first for probably – at least 25 years since we've had a Virginia amateur in the event. How how psyched are you to see that and see the, that representation?
2: I've seen Isaac Michael get in. I, I you know you can't see me because it's only on voice here, but it was like a fist pump moment. And just, you know, I, I love repping Virginia. I love where I'm from. It's an unbelievable place to, to grow up and certainly went to undergraduate school at Virginia Tech and grad school at VCU and then try to get home and see my family often. But, you know, just knowing how important uh, the, the VSGA is the Virginia State Golf Association is to the, the community there of golfers and providing outlets from you know junior golf and different programming of introducing the sport and, and just kind of elevating its reach uh, in the community it's just great to see kind of people come out of that state because that's inspirational moments I think to the future of the game and future golfers in Virginia that there's a pathway to compete in our national championship our U.S. Open and, and here we are have two Virginia you know amateurs uh, competing so I can't wait to introduce myself and see them during the week. And I know Matt Smiley uh, sent me a text this morning asking for what address to ship some things to uh, to LA CC for. So I'll be on the lookout for those and get those in the, those guys' hands.
0: Yeah, I think they're pretty proud to rep rep the VSGA over there too. It's going to be really exciting to watch. Um, you know, I, after the last two years, uh, you you get to game week here uh, coming up. I mean, what is what does this feel like for you uh, uh, going into the home stretch here?
2: It's it's so fulfilling. Um, you, you feel grateful of the relationships that you've built over those two years, the members of this club who, again, have, have allowed us to host this U.S. Open and, and share in their golf course with the rest of the world. So you go on that journey with them of not seeing one tent on the property, not having one player And it's all all your plans are on paper. It's a 2D map. And and now we just look out you know, our office or out the clubhouse and on the terrace and see our grandstands on 18 and and see our corporate chalets and the number of uh, clients that we have in the hospital supporting us in hospitality or choosing the U.S. Open to entertain clients like it's it's real. It's here. Um, and it's just the, the excitement's building. And we just kind of cannot wait to, to open our mission gates on Monday and, and share what we know um, as a special, special place in this game, which is the Los Angeles Country Club. And, uh, you know, if you're not here in person, it's through our rights holders like NBC and certainly, you know, Golf Channel under that umbrella. We'll have more live coverage of any U.S. Open in history. You know, we're broadcasting to 190 countries in 25 different languages. Uh, the online streaming, you know, it's it's just going to be spectacular and something that people haven't seen before. So it's just I know it. Our team knows it. LACC knows it. And now that's the exciting part. We get to share that with the world, and uh, we know what our impact is on the game, to the community that plays host, but also just the inspirational moments that our champions provide, those on television and, and those, uh, you know, picking
0: up a club for the first time. Yeah. What's What's your next project after this?
2: That's a good question. You know, I haven't even allowed myself to think about what's next. Um, I just get so into uh, or in, in depth into the details here. Um, I'll come up for air when this is over on uh, maybe June 19th, uh, that Monday, and I'll start to think about, you know, maybe – taking a vacation, going, going back to Virginia, hopefully playing some golf myself. Uh, that's kind of one of the biggest misnomers of working kind of in the industry is you're busiest uh, during the nicest time of the year, uh, usually golf season. So I'll try to play as much golf as I can from July to October. Uh, hopefully spend a lot of that time in Virginia, seeing the family and then back uh, in North Carolina where I have a home in Pinehurst.
0: Well, that's great, man. We'll look forward to seeing you back here. And uh, this has been awesome. Thanks for joining us today and uh, good luck with everything next week for sure.
2: I really appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for the time, opportunity to get on with you guys. Uh, if anything I can ever do for you, just please let me know.
0: Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Charlie.
2: All right. See you. Take care. Ya.
0: Great stuff there from both Isaac and Charlie, and we thank them both for taking a little time out of their very busy schedules to share their thoughts. I'm going to leave you with a few numbers to ponder in regards to the U.S. Open. There are 156 players in the field, but 84 earn their spots via exemption. So in reality, There were only 72 spots up for grabs during golf's longest day on Monday. The USGA accepted a record 10,187 entries for this year's US Open. So only 0.71% of players who teed it up on Monday made it to LA. To say that Simmons and Brennan are an elite company would be a massive understatement. Two Virginia amateurs have never competed in the same US Open. So history right there. Big shout out to Tyler Riggin at the USGA for this research. The last time a Virginia amateur competed in the US Open came when Tom McKnight played at Pinehurst in 1999. Prior to that, it was Mark Lawrence Sr. in 1981, Lanny Watkins in 1971, Vinnie Giles in 1970, Wayne Jackson in 1963, Dean Beeman in 1962, George Bigham Jr. in 1954, W.C. Cunningham in 1939, Morton McCarthy in 1936, and Dick Lane in 1929. So enjoy this US Open. It's an historic one when it comes to Virginia golf. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And until next time, so long.